Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. My guest today is Elizabeth Engel. Elizabeth is chief strategist at Spark Consulting, where she helps associations grow. Elizabeth periodically writes white papers on topics of interest to association staff and board members. And these topics often, while they're geared towards the association market, definitely address issues that would be of interest to the wider nonprofit community. These white papers go in depth and provide interesting and actionable insights on the topics she explores. On this episode, Elizabeth and I delve into the topic of digital transformation, the focus of her upcoming white paper that she co-wrote with Maddie Grant. In our conversation, we explore what digital transformation is and why it's important to associations and other nonprofits. We also talk about some of the key differences between associations and for-profit companies that most of the literature to date about digital transformation has been focused on and the implications of those differences. Welcome, Elizabeth. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Carol. I'm very happy to be here. So I'd like to start out with the question, what what drew you to the work that you do? What would you say motivates you or what's your why? You mean like in the, in the largest sense of why do, why do I work in associations or why am I in the nonprofit space? Um, you know, it, it goes back to when I was in graduate school. So I was Initially, I'd gone to graduate school at the University of Virginia. I was studying political theory. I was intending to be a professor of political theory. That's not really a job that exists anymore, even back then. <laughs> that, didn't, that job didn't really exist anymore, even 25 years ago. And so, you know, when I, when I decided to, to bail out of the PhD program and do the terminal masters, and I was graduating, and then I was like, okay, well, now what? And we were living in Charlottesville, which is lovely, but small. A lot of overeducated people running around there who don't want to leave. I was one of them. So I started looking for work in D.C. The first interviews I got were with for-profit companies, and I realized pretty quickly that I just could not bring myself to care about making the widget five cents cheaper than the other guy and selling it for five cents more. Like, I just did not care about that. Um, And so I thought, okay, well, clearly nonprofit industry is is for me and I started applying only for nonprofit jobs got my first job uh, I was I was applying both in sort of fundraising cause oriented organizations and associations got my first job working in an association my first kind of capital R capital J real job and never looked back it's so funny that you talked about uh, being a professor and I, it sounds like you got a little further along that path than I did but that was definitely my idea in college that I would be a history professor but then I was working on my my final project, not a dissertation because it was just a BA. I don't know the big paper that I had to write at the end of my at end of end of my degree. And I was doing some research in a in the library in the big central library in Philadelphia, and uh, reading these old magazines because uh, I was doing a, a project on basically how women were being told how to be mothers, kind of advice to mothers. Um, at turn of the century Germany. Oh my. <laughs> so I was reading women's magazines from turn of the century Germany. And so, but I was, I realized that I was, I had a mad dust allergy. So I was like, clearly my life's work needs to not be in archives. <laughs> that's that's going to be a real problem. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
<laughs> so, so being a professor, being a history professor was not, not uh, going to be what I was going to be doing. So I had to figure, figure out something else. And I did, my first job was with a for-profit company. And it was when I helped out when, when, you know, of course it was all clients, all comers, we were helping people get on, on talk shows. And, you know, it was after that, that I was like, no, if I'm going to be promoting things, if I'm going to be publicizing, if I'm going to be prom- um moving some kind of cause forward, you know, um, I want to have it be something that I, so that's when I made the shift to the nonprofit. Yep. So one of the things that I really appreciate about your work is your generosity in creating uh, free, very substantive white papers um, on a variety of topics. And, and you've, I think maybe it's going back to that kind of that drive to research that originally uh, would have been would have been a, uh, in that professor realm because you really go all over the place and, and, and dive into a, a lot of different topics. And I think actually it's where we originally met because we um, you did an interview with me as a for a case study for one of your white papers. Yes. Yeah. When you were at NASA. Yes. 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 So around design thinking, lean. Yeah. Lean. Yeah. So, so uh, how did you get started doing those? Oh yeah. So that was, um, yes, you are correct. This, this definitely relates to my interest in research and writing. Um, and the, there's sort of, um, a range of lengths, I guess is probably, or a range of types of writing, you know, everything from, tweets, obviously, of course, you know, all the way up to books. And the length that I always liked was kind of the extended essay, you know, that something that falls into that 25 to 40 page range where you can you can really have an idea and develop it, but you haven't committed yourself to a 400 page book. And so when I was uh, when I was first launching Spark back in 2012, uh, Spark Consulting, I one of the things that I was I was thinking about is, okay, well, uh, you know, I'm going to need to do stuff to kind of get my name out there. And and I had already started doing some of that in the association world prior to, to launching the business. You know, I, I was, um, I'd been really involved in training people for the certified association executive exam through ASAE for like the period from, from right after I earned it myself, uh, 2004 through 2010. You know, I was, I was super involved with that. And that kind of got me started on the speaking track uh, for ASAE and I had, and I had had and other associations and I and I had had uh, employers who were supportive of that um, you know even while I was I was still an association executive working directly for associations myself um, and, you know and I'd been doing an association blog for a number of years at that point and, and that was all great like I was, I was enjoying all that plan to continue all of that and, and whatnot but I was kind of looking for something a little bit more substantive I guess or or a little bit more um, uh, something that has has a longer shelf life I guess that's that's the best way to put it right because if you're speaking at a conference well that's great for the people who go to the conference but what about everybody else Right, um, you know, and and blog posts tend to be somewhat ephemeral. Um, so I, w- I was looking for something that would have a little bit more more staying power to it. So uh, it was the fall of 2012, and I got contacted by a state society to come and speak at their conference. And so we're kind of talking about potential topics that I could cover. Did they want something that was sort of more personal story inspirational, or did they want something that was a little bit more research based? Um, and they, you know, they said, oh, we know our, our opening keynote is going to be a little bit more that kind of personal story. So like, let's go with something a little bit more research based. And we're kind of bouncing some ideas around. And I was like, well, look, you know, what, what about this, this concept of information overload and, and content curation, you know, and this is something that, that we're all dealing with both personally for ourselves and also as association professionals trying to deal with our members um, and other audiences, you know, so what if I kind of uh, 
dive into that and look into that a little bit more and then and then kind of make the case for associations to begin focusing less on content creation and more on content curation. And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds really interesting. So that ended up being the first white paper. And it's actually uh I I revisited that topic uh for the white paper that I turned out last year um because so much had changed in the intervening eight years with regards to both the the volume of information that we're dealing with um and also um kind of the 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 association environment for doing content curation um but people are still interested in the topic so i was like mm, i really need some updated information here and, and ended up revisiting that but anyway um so you know i went ahead and created that white paper for the event um and i i will say i bombed at the state society event i have never bombed at a speaking gig like that before or since um but we did learn a very valuable lesson which was that their audience really preferred inspirational personal story speakers uh, but uh the thing that i took away from that uh, other than than you know quizzing my my potential uh speaking employers a little bit more closely about their audiences and what they really wanted um was hey this white paper thing is a pretty interesting idea um and i i think this might be my thing my thing that i'm going to create that is is kind of that more lasting longer shelf life way of contributing to the body of knowledge in the association industry which turned out to be the case. <laughs> yeah, so now you have quite the body of work yourself in terms of all of those white papers. And the, the one that you're currently working on is focusing on digital transformation. Could you say a little bit about what this is and why it's important to organizations? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as you as you mentioned, there's now a pretty significant library. This is number 13, which I think is lucky. Um, yeah, and so you know, the, the topic, and, and as you mentioned earlier, it's across a really wide variety of topics um, because I basically look for um, something that, you know, kind of a, a major trend or something like that, that I think is either impacting or is about to impact the association industry where I, I think that we're either not really paying attention to it the way we need to, or or like with the blockchain white paper, it's something that's really nascent, um, you know, when I have an opportunity to educate people about this, um, you know, or it's something where the existing literature and advice that's out there is maybe missing something. And that's very much what was going on with taking on digital transformation. Digital transformation is not a new topic. You know, this is something that organizations have been working on for, you know, at least six or eight years, you know, in, in most cases. Um, and so, of course, that that immediately begs the question, well, then why, why bother to write about this, right? This is one of those cases where, in my view, the existing literature and advice and case studies and all that stuff that are out there about digital transformation are, are missing something kind of fundamental about associations. And that's actually part of the reason why I wanted to work with Maddie Grant for this particular white paper. So, you know, as you know, uh, pretty much all of my white papers, I work with a co-author. You know, we look to feature um, other experts in interviews within the white papers. We do case studies of organizations that are doing work in that area, et cetera. But, you know, I, I, I match my co-author to my topic. And so the, the thing that associations have not, that, that, that no one's been paying attention to for associations or writing about for associations is the issue of culture change 
with regard to digital transformation. So there's, you know, one of Maddie's favorite favorite sayings is digital transformation is culture change plus vendor selection. Um, and, the, you know, the technology of culture change is, or of, of a digital transformation is very important, obviously. Um, but we do tend to have a little bit of shiny object syndrome um, and get very focused on the tech pieces of this. And, and we don't think enough about the culture change that's required in order to actually be a digitally transformed organization. And that's where the problem is for associations. The majority of the work that is extant about digital transformation is from a for-profit perspective. That's what they miss. Associations are unique. Our cultures are unique. Our our relationships with our, I'm making air quotes here so people in the podcast won't see this, but our, our customers are very different. A member of an association is not the same as a member of Costco. Um, and and all of the digital transformation work that's out there is about how do you deal with a member of Costco, not how do you deal with a member of an association? Um, and so Maddie and I saw a real opportunity to say, okay, look, there's, there's good stuff out there about you know, um, the tech piece of this. And we do summarize a little bit of that in the white paper. But there's good stuff out there about the tech piece of this. Let's talk about what makes association culture unique and then some of the kinds of things that you need to think about as an association executive in dealing with culture change in order to, to do that digital transformation, to truly become a transformed organization to, um, you know, one of the, um, uh, one of the, the, experts that we spoke with for the white paper um, is a guy named uh, Martin Mocker, who a lot of association folks are, are familiar with the work of Dr. Jeannie Ross, uh, because she's been a speaker at some association tech conferences. Um, but, you know, they they write about digital transformation and the the distinction that they make, and, and this is where the transformation piece happens, is between being digitized and being digital. Um, and being digitized is the piece where you know you're you're uh, grabbing all those shiny objects and you're doing exactly what you've always done just using technology so it's better in some way um and it, it that tends to start with an internal focus like we're going to fix our internal processes and start you know doing more st less stuff analog and more stuff digital internally um and you know and then it works its way out into customer facing stuff or member facing stuff um but if you if you want to be able to make the leap from getting some cool tech to do some stuff in a digital way that we used to do in an analog way versus becoming a transformed organization it's it's that leap to going digital that you have to make and that's where the culture piece comes in. Well, you packed a lot in there. So I wanted to dial back to a couple <laughs> different things that. Yeah, sure. that you talked about. Um, well, one was an interesting, and I, uh, I, I'd love for you to unpack a little bit more about what you see as kind of those unique aspects of an association and kind of what makes them different from for-profit organizations. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and for, for folks who've been in associations for, uh, you know, a number of years, this is all going to sound familiar, but, you know, it, it starts at the top, right? Um, our, our relationships to our boards of directors are very different. You know, first of all, you know, plenty of, of uh, for-profits are privately owned. Even those that aren't, even those that, that are, you know, publicly traded, that have a board of directors, their boards are very different than our boards. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very different relationship. And the, the board of directors of an association is much more directly the boss of the CEO or ED and the staff than happens in a for-profit company. So, you know, it, it, it begins right at the top. The other thing is 
our, our again, air quotes for the, the, the podcast folks, um, our customers are members. They own the organization. If you're a, if you're a quote unquote member of Costco, you don't have an ownership stake in Costco, right? Um, you know, if you're, if you're an Amazon prime member, you don't have an ownership stake in Amazon, right? You truly, they're calling it membership and that's all very lovely and it implies relationship, but you're a customer. Um, and, and this is not to say that associations don't have customers. We absolutely do, but the membership relationship is what makes associations unique. And so, you know, all of all of those pieces, the, the role of the board, the board to the CEO, executive director, the board of the staff, the members, how they relate as owners of the organization, right? All of this gives them a very different kind of stake in decisions that the organization makes. And it also complicates the culture change picture because you have people with who are not staff, but have a much greater investment than somebody who's stopping by your store to buy a book or whatever has in the organization. And, and so that, that all has to be taken into account when you're talking about intentionally designing your culture and then intentionally creating culture change. Yeah, a couple things come to mind there. You mentioned um, that you had interviewed me uh, as part of that case study when I was at NAFSA, and that's an association that serves the international educator uh, field. What was really interesting about that group, and I worked for a number of different organizations, different associations, and I'd never seen this before. NAFSA's, I don't know if it's still true today, but at least that the generation of members that I was working with would call themselves NAFSA's. Like they'd made a, a country, they'd made an identity about being part of that organization. So that sense of identifying with the organization, being part of it, being seeing it as, you know, I am a member, I am part of this community. Uh, it is integral to how I think about my work um, and I have some ownership stake in it, um, even though I don't know that they, you know, a lot of folks necessarily thought about it exactly that way, but they also but in, in many ways, they acted that way. They acted that they had that relationship. So, yeah, su super interesting about how, you know, it can just, it's not just sending a check to get a membership to get a magazine, you know, when it when it's, when it, well, honestly, when it's done well, right? When, when there really is that sense of identity and not just being a consumer. The reason that people associate is because they're trying to accomplish something that they have found either extremely difficult or impossible to associate on their own. So they're gathering with other people with similar interests. Well, that, that, the very nature of trying to do that means that this has got to be a long-term commitment. Maybe not the rest of your life, but certainly, you know, longer than making a consumer type purchase. Um, and it, it exactly, as, as you just expressed, that can over time, maybe not for everybody, but certainly for some people, become a part of your identity. Yeah, and I, th I also, if what you were talking about made me think about um, just really any kind of um, tech-related uh, project where you're trying to, um, you know, bring in something new, have people um, maybe use a tool, a new tool that will help them do that. Hopefully, you know, obviously the idea usually is to help people do their job easier, better, um, make things better for members, for, for constituents. And at the same time, you know, folks get very focused on the technology, get very focused on what are the features that we want? You know, are we picking the right, the, the right vendor? Are we picking the right software to do this job? Forgetting that really what's way more important is after that decision's made, how are you helping people actually learn how to use the thing integrate it into how they're doing their work and, and accept it, adopt it? 
And so it's not just this, you know, shiny object, you bought it, and then it's like, okay, now it's gathering dust. Well, and, you know, it's it's funny that you would use that example, because that is a further illustration of the difference between a consumer relationship and a membership relationship, right? You know, if you think about, again, just as a sort of a regular person, your own experience, whatever, whatever vendor you like, you know, that you that you go to online regularly, they make a bunch of changes to their website. And you're like, ah, I got to figure out how to do the thing again. Like whatever thing it is you go to them to do. Like I got to figure out the thing again. Okay, whatever. It's fine. You know, association execs know that if we make significant changes to our websites and our members don't like them, they're not just kind of kind of shrug and be like, oh, well, I just have to I have to figure out how to find the thing that I normally do here and whatever. It'll be fine. You know, uh, my favorite example for that is like every time, um, you know, my the the airline that I usually fly that has where I have all my frequent flyer stuff, like they make changes. I'm like, oh, crap. OK, I'll figure it out. It's fine. Right. I don't call them up and, and chew them out on the phone if I don't like it. If you do something like that for your members, they absolutely feel like they own the organization and they will call you up or email you and tell you what they think. Right. Because it's not just, oh, the powers that be on high have done this and I, the poor consumer, have no power in this situation. That's not it at all. Right. I'm a member. I'm a part owner of this organization. I have a say. Yeah. And, and one of the things you talked about was the difference between um, being digitized and digital. Um, can you can you say a little bit more again about what what you see as the difference between those two and why that's important? Sure. And for, you know, for people who really want to dig into this, I would definitely recommend that they check out the book. Um, so I'm getting the title of it right now. Uh, it is Designed for Digital, How to Architect Your Business for Sustained Success. So that's by Dr. Jean Ross, uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Beef, and Martin Mocker, who's the guy that we, we interviewed for the white paper. Um, and we'll put links. Yeah, we'll put links great. to that and um, the paper so, uh, in the show notes. Yeah. So the, the difference is um, going you know, be, becoming digitized has to do with I'm taking analog functions and I am now doing the exact same analog functions I was doing before, only now I'm using technology to do them. So a great example of this is when I first started my career in association management, it was the mid-90s, um, and we were doing all of our membership, uh, join and renew, everything it was an entirely analog paper form, mail it in with your check to the lockbox, the bank, you know, kind of, kind of deal. Um, and yeah, and that was, I mean, it was the mid nineties, right? That was pretty typical. You know, we were, associations were sort of just venturing onto the web. We did have a website. It was your typical mid nineties brochureware. Um, you know, so I arrive on the scene and I'm like, Hmm, I'll bet our members would like to be able to join and renew online. Well, you know, let me let me set up a test of this. Speaking of lean startup methodology, right? I just threw up a form that dumped all the information to an email. Yes, as a matter of fact, I was dumping unencrypted credit card numbers across the internet into an email that we then had to process, like we would print them out and send them off to the lockbox for processing on the back end. So it was still a little analog there. Um, but from the front end, from the from the members' perspective, it looks quite digital. Um, and so, you know, that was that was my my test to say, hey, like nobody has this as a built-in feature of their association management system yet. Let's find out if it's worth building it. And in fact, it was like our, our members were very much people who wanted to be able to do this online. Then we had data. We were like, yes, we will pay to go ahead and build this because it's going to be worthwhile. But my point is that is becoming digitized, right? We were, you know, we had this analog membership program. 
you know, now you could join and renew online, but it was, it was still the exact same membership. Like we weren't changing anything about the membership. We were just saying, oh, well, you know, instead of mailing in your form with your check to the lockbox, which by the way, you can still do, um, you know, if you want to do this online with your credit card and be fancy and fast, we can, we can do that, right? That's, that's becoming digitized. Becoming digital has to do with, with a mind shift. Um, you know, it, it's, and actually the, the Construction Specifications Institute, um, story from the from the uh, the, the white paper their their crosswalk platform illustrates this pretty well it's it's about shifting your mindset to say you know no what we are going to do is we are going to think differently about our members and our other audiences about how we interact with them about how they want to interact with each other being aware of what the technology enables at this point to create entirely new ways, entirely new programs, products, and services, entirely new ways of building networks and relationships, entirely new ways of creating knowledge, entirely new ways of organizing ourselves, entirely new ways of creating group action that are digital from the start. That that to me, and that's the transformation bit because it because you have to change your mind about about all this stuff. Not it's yes, it's changing business processes as well and it's changing product development and all that kind of thing. But and this gets back to culture change change. It's a complete shift in the way you think about things and view the world. Yeah, yeah and what I appreciated about that story um and and I, if I can let's see if I get it right in terms of my summary. They um, saw a problem that all their members were having. Uh, the problem wasn't necessarily and in, in their work, so kind of out, out in their world, not necessarily about how the association works, but how their members were doing work in the world with a whole bunch of other folks who weren't necessarily members of that association, but uh, lots of different, uh, you know, other types of professionals that their members had to work with and how they all had their own way of, uh, you know, I guess one uh, sharing information version that everyone could relate to would yeah. be, you know, the, the multiple times you have to fill out your medical history at every doctor that you go to. Yeah. Right. So all of these different people were 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 um, managing information, managing inventory in different ways and had different systems, different technology. Um, so they didn't build something to to like take over all of those things, but they built a bridge. Yes. By building those, what are they called? APIs? Yep. Um, programming interfaces. Yep. <laughs> right. So they that that translation um, to go back and forth between those different systems, which really transformed how people were doing their work in the field. Yeah. And, and honestly, I mean, this is something anybody who's ever done, you know, any kind of home renovation project could totally relate to this, right? You know, like, so the Construction Specifications Institute, this is um, guidelines, uh, the, the things, the regulations that keep large scale construction processes safe um, and ensure that you have a good result on the end. Um, you know, a bridge that doesn't fall down, a skyscraper that doesn't collapse, et cetera, right? Um, and so anybody who, anybody who's ever done a home renovation project knows how this goes, right? You've got your general contractor and then you've got a zillion subcontractors and they're all doing different pieces of the project and they all have their own systems and their own processes and their own ways of doing things and, and you know, all that. And, you know, unless you are a crazy person and decide to act as your own general contractor, um, you know, that's kind of what your general contractor is doing is managing all of that for you, right? They're not telling 
the carpenter or the tile guy or the electrician or the plumber or whatever how to do their job or what process they the processes they should should use they manage it for you well csi construction specifications institute saw the opportunity to do a similar kind of thing for large-scale construction projects where there's everybody from architects and engineers to you know all all of the other types of things that you would think about that was would be involved in building something like a skyscraper or a tunnel or a bridge or whatever um and they saw an opportunity to create that kind of shared platform for them to be passing information back and forth so that everybody can still use the systems that make them happy and the programs that they like to use and can still manage the information internally the way they like to. But all of a sudden, we're all sharing it across this, this bridge platform where it cuts down on wasted time, it reduces risk, it cuts down on errors, you know, and, and this has been, it's, it's a completely different way of thinking because Carol, as you just articulated, most of those other players are not and will never be CSI members. Um, but this is an opportunity to create something that serves the entire industry vertical soup to nuts. So what would you say are some of the kind of either misconceptions or mistakes that associations make when they, you know, think, okay, well, we need to, you know, maybe we've started on some digitizing, but we really want to shift more to this larger transformation uh, moving towards a digital uh, process? Yeah, you know, the, the most obvious one is the shiny object syndrome, right? You know, like we, we notice something going on. And so we grab a piece of technology and slap it on there. And we're like, we're fixed. We're done. Yay. Go us. Um, yeah, that's, that's not going to transform your organization. That that's the kind of thing that gets you in the trouble that you mentioned earlier of, Oh, and we had this great idea and no one's using it. <laughs> um, you know, we've we've slapped some technology, a technological bandaid on a problem that we noticed. Um, you know, and and so I, I think that's one of the main challenges that we face is you know you've got to think about this in a much more strategic way. Um, you know, one of the things that that Maddie and I stress in the white paper is you don't you don't want to have a strategy for digital or a strategy for mobile or a strategy for social or a strategy for AI or whatever, right? Like you you have your larger organizational strategy and you're looking for how do things like mobile and social and web and AI and internet of things and, and data analytics and all that, like how do they fit into and contribute to your larger organizational strategy? Um, and, you know, so as I always try to do with, with the white papers, the final section of this is very much the okay, all of this information that you've shared with me was lovely and interesting, and I see what you're thinking here, but like, what do I actually do? Um, and so, you know, and, we, and we, we lay it right out in a very like clear series of steps. Um, you, you have to start with assessing where you are. If you, don't, if, you, if you don't know where you are and where you're trying to go, any path is the right path and the wrong path, and you're going to end up in places that you had, you know, no necessary intent of, of, of ending up. So you've got, to, you've got to know where you are right now before you can figure out where you're going to go. And some associations, when they do that, they're going to discover, you know what, we've got work to do on digitization first. One of our other stories, the Independent Community Bankers Association, that was very much... Uh, what my friend Prabash, who works there, discovered when he when he was hired, is like we have to we have to digitize first. Like there's some internal stuff going on here that we're going to have to fix before we can look to trans. Right, but because he assessed, he knew that. Then you've got to move on to things like getting support and resources. Um, you need to look for strategic areas 
where all those digital technologies, social mobile data, mobile data analytics, you know, all the stuff that, that, that I just mentioned, could contribute, could, 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 could help, could, could help fix things. Um, you're going to have to take a look at what's going on with your legacy processes because you may find yourself in that digitization work to do first before we can go digital, right? But you need to, you need to take a look at that. Um, then you're going to have to, in addition to getting sort of leadership support and financial resources, you're also going to have to assemble your team, like Avengers Unite, right? Like you've got, or Avengers Assemble, right? You Like you've got to, you've got to get your Avengers together. Um, and this is one of the association cultural things. It's not just going to be staff. You're also going to need to be um, recruiting volunteers and kind of rank and file members onto your team um, because that's one of the things that's different about our culture. Then you've got to get into that kind of experimental framework and consider how this is all going to affect your culture and engage in that process of intentional culture change in order to get you to the ends that you that you envisioned when you did that sort of strategic look and how can these technologies contribute to the organizational strategic goals we're already trying to achieve. And um, one of the things that I think people have been advocating for for a long time in the association space and, and in the nonprofit space more generally is really you know, making, uh, having staff and boards, uh, volunteers make more data-driven decisions uh, rather than, you know, the last member who happened to call you and, 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 and bend your ear, um, you know, relying on those anecdotes. And uh, what, are, what are some of the key barriers that you see to really effectively using the data that uh, or organizations actually already have? Oh, man, how much time do you have? Um- <laughs> The to- this specifically is the topic of one of my earlier white papers okay. on evidence-based decision-making that I wrote with uh, Peter Housel from Mariner Management. Um, yeah, th- this is a challenge, right? Um, speaking of legacy systems, um, you know, this for associations is, is one of the big ones. And we actually talk about this quite a bit in the white paper because, you know, consumer businesses would kill to get the kind of data that we have on our members because we we have obviously again not with everybody but for a significant portion of your membership you have a very long-term relationship with those people where they've been doing all sorts of different stuff with you for years and they've and and this is this is actually borne out um in some of the the other studies that we referenced in the white paper that have been done by community brands but the other thing is our members are more willing to share their data with us than they are with most consumer brands because they trust us um, and they are particularly willing to share their data with us if we're transparent about how we intend to use it and it's clear that the reason that we're asking for this is in order to provide them with better service better programs and products etc um, you know so we've we've got a, a treasure trove of data the, the problem is you know one of the kind of the technology pieces of, of digital transformation is data analytics and as an industry we've been lagging on that um, some of that is because we have a lot of legacy systems that were built in you know in, in exclusion of each other um, and so they don't talk to each other particularly well and you know if you can look at kind of the, the history of association management systems and you know for for a while there there was kind of this trend to we're going to do everything in the AMS and we're going to build 
everything as part of the AMS, anything you could possibly think of you might want to do with your members is going to be a module, right? And we pretty quickly all realized that was a terrible idea. Um, and so, you know, people went back to more of a, okay, so, you know, we need to run conference registration. So we're going to we're going to get a best of breed conference registration system and we need to run professional development. So we're going to get a best of breed learning management system and we need to manage the content on our website. So we're going to get a best of breed, of breed content management system there, you know. And and realizing that it's it's better to do it that way than to try to have this one mammoth piece of software that handles everything. But the the problem is those things don't always communicate with each other particularly well. So, you know, back to it, we've got this wonderful treasure trove of data, but none of it's talking to each other. And we have, have lacked the capacity to figure out how to make that happen. Now we're seeing, even, even when Peter and I wrote the evidence-based uh, decision-making white paper a couple of years ago, you know, we're seeing more of a movement towards um, you know, speaking of a crosswalk type platform, something that sits on top of all of those things and they don't have to talk to each other. They all just have to talk to this shared platform, you know, and we're seeing that with everything from, you know, actual business analytics tools to data visualization tools, and, you know, and so my, you know, my, my encouragement to associations would be to keep going on that route, you know, to keep, keep looking at those business information and business analytics tools, you know, get educated about them, you know, just dive in and pick one and find somebody on staff who's interested in, in learning about it, you know, and, and just like, just start going and, and see what you can do and what you can learn and what kind of insights you can garner. So that's that piece of it. The other piece of it is the questions right? Because it's all just a big pile of data if you don't know what it is that you're trying to find out. Um, and so in the midst of finding yourself a good data visualization tool and a good business information tool and finding somebody on your staff who's interested in learning how to use them and, you know, getting them some training and setting them loose and all that, but like all that stuff is good, right? You also want to think about what are the questions that we are trying to answer about our members and other audiences and what data do we need in order to answer those questions. And so one of the things that Peter and I very much argue for in the data-driven decision-making white paper is spend more time on the front end asking better questions. Because then, back to that whole thing of our members are willing to give us data if we know why we want it, you'll have a better question that you're asking. So you'll be asking for more targeted data with a clear, this is why we need it, which means people will be more willing to give it to you, which means you'll be able to have a better answer to the question because you'll be operating from a fuller picture of what's going on. Well, and that all goes back to, you know, strategy from the beginning of thinking about, you know, where, where, where are you right now doing that assessment? Um, and, and maybe you kind of need to go back and do your homework and, and, and do more digitizing, maybe work on your data silos, those kinds of things before you can really shift into transformation. Um, but, but, you know, really having that assessment of where you are and then, you know, working together to figure out what's the vision for where we want to end up. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. 
So I'd like to shift gears a little bit at this point, and uh, I always like to um, ask, uh, I, I have a box of uh, random ice, well, they're not random because they wrote them all, but I randomly picked them out of the box of icebreaker questions. Okay. And always like to end the podcast with one of those. So um, I was about to say, I was about to ask you if you could write a book, what would it be about? But you <laughs> told me you didn't want to write a book, so I won't ask you that one. So who in your life inspires you to be better? Ooh. That that is a good one. Um, so many people. I'm now I'm gonna have to pick one. Um, this is this is gonna be it's it's trite, but that's okay. Um, it's it's probably my spouse. So, um, he he historically has believed in me way more than I believed in myself. Um, the, the perfect the perfect story of that being you know when I when I was first thinking about starting the business, I, at the time I wasn't thinking about starting Spark Consulting. I was thinking about it was time to move on to a different association job. You know, so I'm out there and you know, got my resume going and I'm, you know, talking to people and meeting with recruiters and, you know, submitting resumes and whatnot. And, you know, as I'm starting to tell people in my network, hey, um, you know, I think it's time for me to move on. Uh, the almost immediate response from everyone was, so you're going to start your own consulting business, right? And I was like, um, no, I was going to go work at another association. Um, and so finally, I was meeting a friend of mine who is a recruiter uh, for lunch. Um, and I said, hey, you know, I'm looking to move on. And she's like, okay, so you're going to start your own consulting business, right? And I'm like, you know, you're like the 10th person who's asked me that. Could you please tell me what I'm seeing or what you're seeing about me in this whole situation that I am missing? And she, she did. She laid out some really great advice for me and everything. And I was like, hmm, okay, I really need to think about this a little more seriously. And I came home that night. And we had friends over for dinner and, you know, we have nice dinner and we're cleaning up and whatever. And it's like time to go to bed. And, you know, so as, as I'm getting into bed, I, I, I say to him, I'm like, um, so, yeah, I, ha I had lunch with, with my friends this afternoon. Um, and uh, I'm thinking that maybe I want to start my own business. And he looks at me and he's like, I think you'd be great at that. You should totally do that. And he turns out the light. And I'm like, this man believes in me. Right. <laughs> if, if, if he if he, he believes in me to this level. I need to believe in myself to this level. Um, and, you know, that that level of confidence in me and and confidence that I'm going to make the right decision and do the right thing inspires me to make sure that I do. Mm, awesome. Awesome. Well, what's what's coming up for you next? What are you excited about in your work? Um, getting this white paper launched. Uh, so, uh, yes, for the for the the listeners of the pod, um, it is going to be coming out right around June 1st. Um, so we're, we're very excited about that. Um, and then uh, you know, Carol, as you mentioned, it's freely available. Um, you don't even end up on a mailing list. I mean, you can just have it. Like, I don't, I don't collect your data or anything like that. You can, you can just have it. Um, so definitely getting, getting that launched. Um, and also watching the association industry begin sort of poking our heads out post-pandemic. Um, you know, this is no great secret, but for a lot of small consultants, uh, 2020 was a pretty rough year because, you know, associations very much kind of went into like hunker down and, and try not to panic mode. Um, you know, and so for, for a lot of us, you know, 2020 was a little challenging. Um, totally understandable, right? You know, when an association doesn't know what's going to be happening and they may even be having layoffs of staff, they're not looking to be hiring outside help. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm watching, again, more associations start kind of poking their heads out, look, looking around and start thinking about, okay, you know, we're, we're moving into whatever the post-pandemic is going to look like, you know, and now thinking about some of this stuff that we just, you know, for a year, we're like, we just, we're, we're in survival mode here, man. We can't think about any of this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm looking forward to, to all of that. Um, and 
kind of seeing where we go as an industry because um, you know and this is this is um, something that we talk about in, in one of the other case studies in the white paper. Associations had to make a lot of changes really fast, and we, you know that we some of them were good choices and good changes and some of them were less so right like we did not have the luxury of sitting around and assessing everything and you know like yet we had to move right now um and so i'm also really interested to see kind of what's going to stick and what's not going to stick i'm very curious about that um yeah so I'm, I'm eager to see how that all plays out too yeah i think that's going to be i think it's what a lot of people are thinking about right now and asking the question of kind of well we we, we suddenly well one we suddenly kind of enacted changes that perhaps a few people had been talking about for years and we'd been ignoring them. And then overnight we, we had to do them. But then, you know, what do we want to keep? What helps us uh, in terms of maybe being more efficient, uh, including more people? But then where is it really important, you know, basically like working remotely or and, and doing virtual events? You know, where is it really important for people to be in the room together? And, you know, my one wish, if this can happen, you know, I'll, it will be just amazing that people are start being much more intentional about why are we getting all these people on a train, plane, automobile to come together and be together and, and the answer should not be to sit and listen to a lecture that they could have watched at home since that's what we've done for the past year. Oh, man. So if that could yeah. be the change that comes out of this for organizations and their their convenings and meetings, I would be very excited. Yep. Three things related to that, right? Number one, the whole thing of like anytime you're having a meeting, look around the table, think about how much each of those people is paid per hour and how long you got them there. And that is the actual cost of that meeting, right? And we don't think about that enough. Two is flight shaming is becoming a thing, right? You know, we have to think about the climate impact of our um, of our travel, you know, nowadays. I mean, that's that's very much, much a thing. And there's the issue also of... Um, like being able to include more voices. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it was great to have you on and we'll definitely um, put links into the book that you mentioned and uh, to the white paper when it comes out and more generally to the rest of them uh, so that people can have access to all that wonderful, all those wonderful resources that you've been producing over the years. But thank you so much yeah. for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And, and, you know, I, I made these for you all. So please take them. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks, Carol. Thank you. I appreciate Elizabeth's focus on organizational culture change if an organization is going to truly transform digitally. It's not just about shifting internal processes from analog to digital. It is really thinking more broadly about how you're using technology to support your mission and what those broader implications could be for your organization. Anyone who's worked on a technology project knows how easy it is to get caught up in worrying about making the right decision, about what system to choose to achieve your goals, whether it's what fundraising software, what customer management system, or what team collaboration tool you're going to use. And then, if when appropriate, which vendor is going to be right to help you properly service the system. But even if you make the quote-unquote perfect decision, which doesn't happen in the real world, if you do not bring folks along with you and consider the changes from their perspective, you may find that they do not see the change as the wonderful innovation or improvement that you do. Have you given thought and time to think about how a group will adapt to the new system? 
what it will mean in terms of their day-to-day -day and their workflow? Can you find a few champions who will lead the way and demonstrate its value to those who are reluctant to jump in? The objects are a lot less shiny when folks won't use them and they don't end up solving the problem you thought they would. Not because the tech can't do it, but because it is too much hassle for your teammates to take the time to learn the system and it's really not an urgent need for them. This past year demonstrated just how quickly people can learn new technology, such as Zoom, when it's a burning need. So it's not really about whether people can do it. It's really rather, is it important for them to do so? If not, how can you help, help them see the importance or see the value to them? Thank you for listening to this episode. It's an honor for you to spend time with me. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. And a link to Elizabeth's new white paper will be there. And I want to thank Nora Strauss-Riggs for their support in editing and production, as well as April Custer of 100 Ninjas for her production support. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you would share it with a colleague or a friend or on social media. Please tag us if you do. We really appreciate you helping us out get the word out. Thank you. See you next time.